This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Over the last few years, a series of deadly fires have swept through California. Last year, a wildfire in paradise was the state's deadliest. It killed 85 people. The culprit? It was the power company, PG&E. It's the biggest electric utility in the state, and its aging power lines sparked these fires. Wildfire season is here again, and PG&E's equipment is still not up to date. Today on the show, what went so wrong with PG&E, and what can the company do to stop the fires? Welcome to The Journal. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, July 5th. Miguel, could you introduce yourself and say what your title is? Sure. Uh, I'm Miguel Bustillo. I am the U.S. Energy Editor for The Wall Street Journal. Gas, electric, oil, yeah, I- I'm your guy. The PG&E origin story is fascinating, first of all. PG&E was founded in 1905. In 1905, two companies that started in the 19th century, one which was uh, essentially a gas works, the the company that illuminated San Francisco with gas lamps, and uh, a company that was one of the first electric utilities in in the United States, combined and formed PG&E. By 1930, is essentially the only game in town in Northern and Central California. It was in some ways kind of synonymous with California. As PG&E grew, California grew. PG&E operates one of the oldest high-voltage transmission line networks in the world. PG&E built these enormous, essentially, extension cords, if you will. And those lines, uh, in, in many cases, were built in like the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And they're still up? And they're still up. We have these companies all over the United States that are kind of relics of the early 20th century in terms of being monopoly companies that had a clear reason for existing when they were created. And they're still running much in the same way that they did when they were created. And for a long time, it seemed like that was okay. It was handling its business until it wasn't. Before we get to PG&E's wildfire problems, there was this other safety problem that rocked the company in 2010. And that breaking news takes us to San Francisco. Look at this huge fire. A gas line explosion sparks this massive blaze. I mean, witnesses say it looked and sounded like a bomb went off and forced dozens of people there to run for their lives. The PG&E gas pipeline exploded in San Bruno. Eight people died. 38 homes were destroyed. It was determined that the cause of the explosion was a natural gas pipeline owned by PG&E, and that the pipeline, which was built sometime around the 1950s, had been neglected, had not been properly maintained. It became clear that there was a broader threat than just the unfortunate circumstances in San Bruno. PG&E had gas pipelines all over San Francisco and many other cities in the area. And there was concern that PG&E didn't seem to really have its act together. So then do they start investing in their gas infrastructure? Yeah, and and PG&E, its leadership, 
was all focused on dealing with this natural gas issue, sorting out the problems in its natural gas division, replacing executives, spending a lot of money on the pipes, et cetera, and assuring regulators that we've got our act together. When, lo and behold, another crisis began to take foot. California is one of the 10 largest economies in the world, but it's deep in the grip of a historic drought. Right now, the entire state is in some form of drought. Los Angeles alone has seen just a little over an inch of rain since July. That's only 10% of what it normally gets. The farmer who owns this property tells me that he had to bulldoze a lot of his crops simply because there's not enough water. The northern part of the state, which traditionally has not been as dry as the southern part of the state, essentially became a giant tinderbox as millions of trees, literally millions of trees, died. If you have, uh, in a normal circumstance, a power pole that falls and uh, it falls in green, uh, lush grass or, or vegetation, maybe it causes a small forest fire of a few acres. If you have a, a, a power pole like that that fails and, and a line that hits the ground in a drought situation, especially if there are strong winds, it can cause an enormous wildfire that can burn hundreds of houses and kill people. Power lines that the company had operated uh, in literally in some cases for a century uh, with scant upgrades suddenly became a major risk. What was the first big fire? So the Butte fire started in September of 2015. And what happened is that a pine tree hit a electric line of PG&E's. And the electricity essentially ignited the tree and dropped these embers into dry grass and, and sparked the fire. It burned 70,000 acres and 921 buildings and two people died. So uh, that was the first real significant PG&E sparked fire of, of the last few years. What was PG&E's reaction to that at the time? Well, I mean, PG&E reacted. Uh, there was, as you can imagine, outcry about it and pressure. In 2016, PG&E stepped up its clearance of dead trees on a kind of one-year blitz to try to deal with that. So, so what happened after the Butte fire? So in 2016, it was a relatively quiet year in California for fires. And PG&E had voiced some optimism that it was kind of starting to get the situation under control. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, it was late. The magnitude of the job, clearing these millions of dead trees, dealing with all these really old power lines, was something you weren't going to be able to fix in a year. In 2017, the fires returned with a vengeance. And there was a whole spate of wildfires around California wine country in Napa and Sonoma counties. Not all of these fires turned out to have been sparked by PG&E equipment, but 18 of them have been linked to PG&E equipment officially by the state of California. And those 18 fires killed 22 people. It was a huge tragedy in California, but it also began to raise questions about PG&E's survival, whether this company was actually going to go broke or not. Because as these fires began to mount, the questions of liability began to mount. And then it happened again. Cal Fire says its investigators determined that PG&E equipment started the fire at two separate locations. Those small fires then became one massive fire that swept across Paradise and surrounding communities, destroying nearly 14,000 homes. It destroyed most everything in its path wiping out the town of Paradise, killing 85 people and burning 153,000 acres. 
the photographs of it are so memorable. It's just all you see is the sort of ghost of the foundation. And I remember these stories from the time of like people's tires melting on the asphalt. It was, it was chilling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, paradise to this day is it almost resembles a moonscape. It is a, just a completely destroyed town, unfortunately. And uh, the fire was overwhelming in its force and is the deadliest fire in the history of California. 85 people dead. For PG&E, this was an, a great escalation of the fire threat. Not only was the utility equipment still causing fires, even more people were dying as a result. Right. So what is going on behind the scenes at PG&E at this time? The company tried to assure residents and, and other people that, once again, that it had things under control. But I think it was clear that it did not have things under control. And in fact, uh, this is an amazing statistic. PG&E was essentially sparking a fire a day in recent years. Most of those fires, of course, didn't amount to much. But its equipment was sparking fires at a rate of one a day. That's insane. How are they able to monitor this and what can they do better? I, I think as time has gone on, it has become clear that they are overwhelmed uh, in terms of trying to track their infrastructure, the age of their infrastructure, the upgrades that they have done over the many, many decades. They simply don't know. Um, they do not have a good record of what they have and how old it is, which greatly complicates the task of trying to figure out what's going to break next. I saw in one of your stories something crazy about the kind of analog systems that they were using up until 2015. Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating uh, things that we learned through interviews and, and going through public documents about PG&E is that it said that it was still tracking some of its transmission systems through maps and pushpins that it had on walls in some of its offices. And this is in 2015? This is, yes, this is in the 21st century. Um, so it was operating in what you might call a 1950s way uh, in, in many regards. So what is PG&E's response to this? Their response is essentially we're working on it. We acknowledge we have a problem. We're getting better. We're working on it. But I think patience is running out. Today it has few allies. And regulators have really lost patience with the company and are contemplating extreme steps at this point, including breaking up the company into gas and electric companies, forcing a sale, even potentially taking away its monopoly license, its exclusive license to operate. And uh, there's a ton of people suing PG&E for damages, a, a whole enormous number of, of people suing PG&E for damages. In January of this year, after the 20, November 2018 campfire, PG&E realized that it had, by its own estimate, more than $30 billion in liability costs that it was facing from these lawsuits. That was more than the company was worth, basically, more than three times what the company was worth. So it concluded it had no option but to declare bankruptcy and try to sort out these affairs in a bankruptcy court. Is there a possibility that PG&E's customers end up having to pay the price for the fires themselves? There's actually no doubt that there will be higher rates. Um, the only question is how high. But PG&E customers will pay in some form for the company's debts. Okay, so PG&E is continuing to operate. And at the same time, they're trying to figure out what this bankruptcy could look like. 
That's one of the fascinating aspects of the story, right? If you have a bankruptcy of a, a regular company, there are other people who provide the service. It's not essential to the public good that this company continue to operate. When you have a utility goes bankrupt, there's a lot of complicated questions that a court has to deal with and that other people have to deal with. You got to keep the lights on, right? You have to make sure that people get this essential service. So the bankruptcy is extremely complicated. It could be a breakup of the company of some kind. It could be a sale to another utility company or someone else who's deemed more trustworthy, responsible, and with deeper pockets, or it could be some combination of those things. It could be a breakup. Uh, for example, one one idea that's been floated by San Francisco is that San Francisco has discussed buying PG&E's wires, essentially taking over the electric grid within the city limits of San Francisco. So you may have parts of California say, we just want out of PG&E. We, we want to do our own thing. And we, we would like to just buy the portion of PG&E that's in our area and, and go our own way. So here we are. California has entered wildfire season again. PG&E's antiquated network still needs a ton of work. What does this mean for people living in its service area right now? One of the things that PG&E has started to do and, and this is really an unprecedented step in terms of the magnitude of, of what PG&E is doing. But PG&E, in effectively an admission uh, that it can't stop all the fires, is preemptively turning off power in parts of California when conditions get really serious or other things happen that lead people to predict that there's a high fire risk. PG&E is turning off the lights. So they're turning off the power, the service that their customers pay them for, because they're afraid of causing more harm. Yeah, essentially, it's a desperation measure. They can't afford to have their equipment cause any more fires. And many people, frankly, are, are happy that they're doing it, even though it raises public safety concerns on its own. Because, of course, if you have prolonged power outages, this can endanger certain people. So PG&E is engaged in a big public awareness campaign to let people prepare and take the necessary precautions. Here you have this company that is at this most dangerous point in terms of the environment that they're operating in, in a deeply precarious financial position. How is this going to end? I wouldn't begin to hazard a guess how this is going to end at this point, um, but I think the questions are enormous. You have a failing utility, a monopoly that provides power to 1 in 20 Americans that suddenly can't do so safely, right? That's essentially what this comes down to, and that has a serious financial troubles uh, and questions about its financial future. So what's the way forward? Uh, I don't know. The big question is, is this company going to survive? Is it going to still exist as a monopoly utility in the way that it did since the early 1900s? Or is there going to be a major change? We reached out to PG&E, and in a statement, a spokesperson told us that the company is making fundamental changes. It has new leadership across the organization, it's upgraded its record-keeping, and it recently implemented a new program to monitor for fire risk, a series of high-definition photographs taken by drone or helicopter. The statement also said that PG&E's most important responsibility is the safety of its customers and the communities it serves. And quote, while we have made progress, we have more work to do. 
We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused, like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe with LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't and a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Knudsen. Now, a word on the workplace. I wanted to share a story about a telecom company in North Carolina called Bandwidth Inc. that takes an interesting approach to managing employee vacations. All of the company's 700 employees get about four weeks of vacation a year. But when someone is on vacation, they are completely barred from doing any work. They aren't even allowed to communicate with their colleagues at all. They call it a vacation embargo. Work-life balance is a good thing, of course, but there is another important reason for this policy. I talked to David Morkin, the company's CEO, about why they do it. If you're a leader and you are forced to go completely dark on vacation, you make darn sure your second-in-command knows their stuff. I have to have someone ready to step up and do my job. David Morgan came up with this idea from his time in the Marines, where teams need to cover for each other. They also need to be able to function without their leader. It's a matter of survival. In business, here's what happens, because obviously we don't have the same high stakes. A leader will be inclined to exalt their own self-importance and tell their subordinate, hey, save everything for me when I get back, or... I'm going to be on the beach, but I'm going to have my phone nearby. Just ping me, escalate to me, make sure if this customer comes inbound that you let me know, or we got to make this decision, just I'll break free to do that from the family. And it's ridiculous. Instead of teaching and coaching junior folks to be able to step up to additional responsibility, leaders tend to hoard the opportunity, and it's wrong. So you're the leader of this company. How have you implemented this rule for yourself? Oh, my goodness. In in the early days, Ryan, um, Henry, my best friend and business partner, I'll, I'll never forget it. He's like, you're nuts. We, you can't do this. You can't go dark. You can't be un- unavailable. I'll send somebody on a horseback. I'm like, no, just make whatever calls you got to make. Make the decision that you should. And if I come back and the building is burned to the ground, that's the way it goes. Wow, but that must take a lot of emotional strength on your part to just let your company go and put it into somebody else's hands and trust that they're going to do the right thing. It is terrifying to imagine a mission-critical strategic decision being made in your absence. But you know what? When you give that decision to somebody else while you're gone, they learn and they lead better. I imagine that this also might create some kind of awkward moments, potentially, if you're a team leader and 
you have to make a decision, who am I going to designate as my number two? How does that play among groups? You're putting your finger on a, a huge issue. Leaders love not to have to think about succession. Leaders love to avoid the hard question of who's, in, who's the leader if it's not you? Because then you're going to have to let the whole team know who it is. And in the past, I've had seasons where it's been easier and seasons when it's been harder. I've got to determine on my own team among my direct reports right now while I'm gone for about 14 days, who will make the executive calls that I would have made while here on deck. And I'm in the midst of that, and I know who it is, and I have to communicate it to the team. And I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I had a bit of anxiety about it, because I do. There's this one moment David told me about from 2011 that became legend around the company for just how seriously they take this rule. Just days before David was supposed to leave for a vacation, the company launched this new subsidiary that sold cell phones. Then right as he was about to leave for the trip, the warehouse holding all the phones went bankrupt. I'll never forget it. I looked at my team at the time and said, hey guys, I'm going dark. Figure it out. And guys got on planes that day and rented vans and rented forklifts that day and moved pallets of phones from one warehouse partner that was dysfunctional to one that was operational. And they rallied and there was no disruption. And I had nothing to do with it. So in other words, it worked out. It was fine. Exactly. And what do you think is the big lesson from all this? I mean, is this something that you think that other companies should do? Are you... Do you continue to be happy with this rule? I t- I'm totally thrilled with the rule because what it teaches leaders uh, is that your first and primary mission is not the strategic plan that you're executing that day, week, month, quarter, or year. Your primary responsibility as a leader is to cultivate leaders and for yourself to be true to your family and friends that you're committed to. And both are possible with a rule like this. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Our show is hosted by Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. Ricky Novetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, and Annie Rose Strasser produce the show. Our engineer is Griffin Tanner. Gerard Cole is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Haley Shaw. Additional music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Wednesday.